This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 344, A Conversation with Danny Fingeroth. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 344. It's our second conversation with Danny Fingeroff as he comes back on the show for another episode to discuss his career in comics. We talk about Alpha Flight. We talk about Mark Spector, Moon Knight. We talk about his time with the Spider-Man books, talk a little bit about the Clone Saga, uh, as well as the genesis of bringing back the clone, the Scarlet Spider's costume, etc. Uh, if you want to check out our first episode with Danny, you can go back to episode 300. Which was released back in November uh, So we're, we were very excited to have him back for another episode And I think uh, you'll really enjoy it A lot of good conversation, a lot of good questions answered It's almost an hour and a half So you'll get a lot of Danny in just a moment But first, some uh, a little bit of house, housekeeping as per usual You can email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com Like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes And you can also subscribe to us on iTunes as well You can uh, look forward to upcoming episodes in the next couple months We'll be sitting down with Jerry Conway, J.M. DeMatteis, um, Christos Gage, and Dennis Hopeless. That's just some of the highlights of what you're going to see from Comic Shenanigans in both in February, March, and April. I think mostly March and April, but uh, that's some of the, the great new stuff we have coming up, as well as today's episode with Danny Fingeroth, which I was very excited to have him back on the show. So without further ado, let's jump right in to our conversation with Danny Fingeroth. Danny, thanks again for joining Comic Shenanigans for the second time. Thank you for inviting me for a second time. You uh, you join um, illustrious company so far. The only other guest to uh, be here two times is artist Nick Patara and uh, writer Fabian Nisiesa. Um Well, I'm in I'm, I'm in esteemed company then. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, there's some things I was going through your um, your very large body of work, both as an editor and a writer, and I noticed that there were some things that just through you know the nature of time we were unable to get to last time, or I don't think we had a lot of time to spend on certain things. So if you don't mind, I'd like to go back way back and uh, ask you about certain things uh, in the late '80s and early '90s, if that's okay. Uh, sure. Um, so I wanted to ask us particularly, particularly about what was it like editing uh, Mark Spector Moon Knight? Because obviously in your tenure you did a lot of the, the bigger books, the spider books, etc. But I like to talk about some of these smaller books which are a little bit more niche. So what was it like writing that, or so not writing, editing that book and what was your kind of vision for it? Um, huh, that's an interesting question. I mean, that was a book that um, I kind of... Um Inherited, as they say, you know, I, you know, my career sort of at Marvel sort of had three uh, phases where I was on staff, uh, then I had a few years where I was uh, a freelance, you know, a contract freelancer, and then I came back on staff um, in '89. And, and I think at that point, Carl Potts had been promoted, and so I inherited a bunch of his books. One of which was Moon Knight. Um, which I had never had much interest in as a character, but you know, you you um, <clears throat> you, you you know, as an editor, you often, you know, especially at a company like uh, Marvel, where there are so many comics and so many uh, e- editors, um, you know, you you don't always have uh, choice on everything you get. Sometimes it's what needs an editor and who has a, and who schedules little light. So. Um, I got 
Moon Knight, and then I, re- you know, I, I researched the character. I knew the basics of, of the character, but I could really never figure out who was Stephen Grant. And I knew it wasn't the writer Stephen Grant, but um, <laughs> who was this Stephen Grant, and who was Mark Spector, and who was Moon Knight, and um, so it turned out that uh, you know, as you know, I, I my background and my interests are very often in. Uh, Jewish-related topics. I even wrote a book called The Skies of Clark Kent, Jews, Comics, and the Creation of the Superhero. <laughs> so it turned out that here was Moon Knight, who um, who was a character who was Jewish, um, and Alan Zelenitz had even, when he was writing the book, established that his father was a rabbi. Um, and yet he had this element in his makeup like, uh, you know, it was created by Doug Manchin, I think Don Perlin. And, you know, I have no doubt that Doug's intention in creating a, a character who was Jewish, that he would be a hero who was Jewish. And yet, um, you know, I think unwittingly the character with his background as a mercenary is, he was a Jewish character who'd do anything for money, you know? So I thought, well, that's an interesting... <laughs> <laughs> kind of playing with and against uh, stereotypes. And uh, and as I say, I'm sure it was done with the best of intentions. And, you know, the, you know there's something about a merc and a mercenary that's, you know, a tough guy and kind of a, you know, a nihilistic macho kind of thing. I, you know, I, get, I get the drama of the merc. Um, and so I just thought and thought and thought about the character and sort of where, you know, I read through the, the uh, you know, the whole history of the character, especially the, you know, the classic Mench and Sienkiewicz issues, and then the uh, the, the run that, um, that Chuck Dixon and, um, oh, I'm blanking on the Sergio um, Carrillo, right? Sergio yeah. Carrillo? Yes, yeah. We're doing on it. And I, and I, and I you know, and, and I just thought, well, what is it? I thought, well, here's this guy. And we're, we're positioning him as a superhero and as a hero. You know, he's sort of, right, he's sort of Marvel's Batman, right? Except instead of being in gray and black and blue, he's all white, which is really must be hard to keep that costume clean, you know? <laughs> um, but, you know, he's, he's got, you know, you can see there's a lot of Batman uh, and the shadow with the multiple identity uh, thing. And I thought, okay, here's a guy, he's a hero. And, but he has this background as a mercenary. I think at that point they had kind of left out the Stephen Grant part of the equation. So it was, he's Mark Spector. I thought, okay, even if he's the world's most conscientious and ethical mercenary, he must have done some shit as a mercenary that, <laughs> you know, that, that he has to atone for. And it's, you know, and maybe it's, you know, I know a lot of characters who, you know, who, right, you have the Punisher who clearly kills people and Venom who kills people. And these, you know, these people are clearly, you know, uh, on the far end of the anti-hero into the villain uh, end of the spectrum. And that's, you know, that's who they are. But Moon Knight was always positioned as like another uh, hero, you know, with or without the power, you know, bestowed by an Egyptian god that was always uh, ambiguous. So, and then you have a Jewish guy with the power bestowed by an Egyptian uh, deity. That was, a, you know, that was another odd, um, you know, and yet potentially uh, uh, fertile uh, 
series of concepts for the character. So, so the first thing I, you know, when I came on, um, you know, I, I, I definitely took um, uh, a um, relatively hands-on editorial position, and I said to the to Chuck, I want Moon Knight to go on trial. I want Mark Spector, you know, to have to pay for something, and it's it'll be that 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 would be a very difficult um, needle to thread because you want to have done something that would mean people would like hunt him down and want to put him on trial and yet have it be something that was either a trumped up charge or that was something unavoidable um, but you know, so that, that was the thing I, I, that, I, and, and it's, it's, it's certainly I'm not you know by any means uh you know, probably superheroes were invented in 1938, and you know, two months later, the first superhero went on trial for something. You know, the whole concept of a, of characters who are who are vigilantes of one sort or another uh, means that they're breaking the law, even in upholding the law. Um, so that so that so that, um, so that I, I certainly remember that as being something where I wanted that seemed to me like a. Um, a fairly obvious uh, story point and development point for the character, and uh, you know, and then um, I don't know if Chuck loved it. I think he got the you know the the idea, and he and he wrote it, and we you know did a six-parter with. Um, uh, oh, and then the Tom Palmer came on as anchor, you know, which uh, Tom had. I think Carl had hired Tom uh, to, or maybe uh, Marcus McLaurin, but they, and they were working together. Uh, they had put. Uh, Tom Palmer on a um, villain issue when Mark Farmer, <laughs> well, I guess, uh, maybe he needed a break. I'm not sure what the reason was. But I thought that uh, Palmer brought so much to um, to the pencil work that I kept him on, um, which is kind of a nice luxury to be able to choose between Mark Farmer and Tom Palmer. I mean, I, you know, I mean, Farmer certainly one of the great uh, inkers, and I knew he wasn't going to have trouble finding uh, more work. But it's always tricky being the new guy coming in onto the book, you know, a guy, you know, a new editor coming onto the book. But I made that switch, and uh, and I was pleased with that storyline. Um, I think ultimately, you know, the story that Chuck wanted to tell, probably, and again, as we're going back twenty more than twenty five, you know, twenty five years now. You know, ultimately the stories Chuck wanted to tell were not the kind of stories that I wanted to do. And and so uh, he was forced to go and write Batman for the next 10 years and make about 10 times more in uh, royalties than he ever would have made on Moon Knight. <laughs> um, so I think Chuck and I uh, still have a cordial uh, relationship, as I recall. Uh, and the other thing that came of working with Chuck is that he uh, brought around Tom Lyle, uh, who they were, I guess they'd worked on Airboy together, and Tom was already uh, making, uh, getting noticed as the artist on the Robin uh, books at um, at DC, and I and I um, had an instinct that, that Tom would be a terrific Spider-Man artist, so eventually, as you, as you know, he came along and, and drew that. So Moon Knight was an interesting character because it, it, um, it's, it in a way, he's a diametric opposite of Spider-Man in terms of um, company and fan expectations. Uh, 
Mm. Right? I mean, he's a character who never had a very big following. Um, and yet people have a nostalgic, some people have a nostalgic feel if they remember or know of the books from when, you know, excuse me, from when mentioned Sienkiewicz did it together. Um, but, it, you know, making a change in Moon Knight or, or, or doing a off-the-wall storyline um, is easier to do because you're not affecting, you know, whatever, uh, you know, a, a mini company within a company the way you do with Spider-Man. And I, interestingly enough, at a, at a certain point when I did uh, get the Spider-Man books back, uh, like a year later, there was a storyline that we actually spun off from Moon Knight, you know, which, you know, yeah, it, which, which, which seems to contradict what I just said, but, you know, it was... There was this character, uh, Midnight, who was Moon Knight's uh, Robin equivalent. Mm. Um, and, um, and, and, um, and I thought, well, it's a fair game. It's in the Marvel Universe. We'll establish it. We'll set it up. It'll get Moon Knight some exposure by putting him in Spider-Man. So that's where the Round Robin storyline came from. And I definitely used, I mean, the, the title Round Robin was appropriate, but it was also when Robin was very popular at uh, <laughs> the Robin miniseries. I definitely, you know, calling it Round Robin, the sidekick's revenge was not an accident. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I never actually thought about that, but yeah, the, 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 the timing of that is very interesting. That I forgot that Robin was, yeah, having that huge resurgence in popularity at that time. Right. So as, as a, you know, having been schooled by the masters in, in cover copy and titles, you know, I figure as long as you're not actively lying, and anything to get someone to pick up a comic, you know, and look at it. I mean, ultimately, you know, it's got to be good, you know, and, they, and it's got to be something that appeals to them enough for them to want to buy uh, a given issue. But, you know, anything you can do to get them to, you know, linger their gaze on it and pick it up and thumb through it, you know, and at least consider buying it, I figure it's fair game. Actually brings up um, a random thought that what do you think of the general trend over the last 20 years towards with covers of comics being less about what's inside and kind of giving you a hint or a promise of something that's coming inside that you're going to want to read about as opposed to just giving you a nice fancy image because it seems like they've definitely gone hard in that direction sometimes you'll get some titles that seem to have something that's a little bit more indicative but still not, not the way it was even in the 90s and earlier. Yeah, you know, look, it's, um, I don't think there's any hard, fast rule, um, and I don't know what the thought process was behind that, except maybe you could be working on, you know, half a dozen different covers at once, and then whichever is the one that's ready, you know, first gets to be the one that's on the book. Um... I, I think in general it's better to have a cover that even if it's even if it's poster like still uh, relates in some way to the action that's going on inside. You know, they may be thinking in terms of foreign markets or collected editions that makes that not so desirable. But you know, in terms of a single issue of a pamphlet comic, it you know I, what what I find interesting and again I don't know if anybody did any demographic study you know I mean sort of the heyday if you look at comics from 
Well, it's interesting. Action Comics, number one, doesn't really have any cover copy. Um, but if you look at comics in general from the 40s through the 90s, there was almost always a good deal of cover copy with the idea being what I had just spoken about a, a couple of minutes ago, that if you, you know, if somebody is reading cover copy, if it's intriguing enough copy that um, someone will linger on it, it's, you know, the beginning of a commitment and a decision to buy the comic. Mm-hmm. You know, and, to, and to consider what's in it and to maybe open it up. You know, I, th- I think part of the... Um, the you know the um, the non-story related poster covers are that I guess there's the assumption that a lot of the audience has been reading whatever the storyline is all along and so they just they just need to know it's the next issue you know the idea that a comic would be you know in a candy store or drug store or 7-Eleven and Somebody would be spinning the rack and suddenly have their attention captivated by some clever uh, copy and a big jagged burst is is a less important uh, issue. So maybe that's one reason it's gone away. But certainly the the operative theory about cover copy is you've you're already committed, you know, emotionally in some small way uh, to the to this. To, to the content of the story and the, and the predicament of the characters. You know, my, I think my favorite, uh, probably I post it on Facebook once a year just because I love it. It's an old Strange Tales cover. And it's, uh, it's a Jack Kirby and Stan Lee story. And the copy, you know, uh, clearly is by Stan. It says, um, only one man on earth knows the horrible secret of the incredible two-headed thing. And then underneath the, you know, then you have the, the two-headed thing, you know, is a big, you know, outline lettering. And then underneath it, it says, and to my eternal regret, I am that man. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, look, obviously that's, a, that's from another era, and that's a little corny by today's standards. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think everything, you know, comes and goes. And I think we probably last time we discussed the whole concept of the thought balloon. Mm. Uh, which has, seems to have disappeared in the main, you know, in the, in the Marvel DC genre type comic. You see it much more in indie comics, um, but somehow it seems to have gone away and been replaced to a certain degree by the, you know, narrative caption, uh, which is odd because the, you know, a lot, a lot of things, you know, I was taught that a lot of us were taught about comics and how people read them were anecdotal. Nobody ever actually spent the money to do actual market research on this or, you know, but sort of the common wisdom was a lot of people skip captions. So, so your, certainly your art and then your word balloons have to convey the story. Then at a certain point, it must be going on for 20 years now, the word balloon replaced the thought balloon. Mm. Uh, sorry, the, the caption box replaced the, uh, thought balloon and, 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 and it made everything sort of like a film noir kind of voiceover or like Blade Runner <laughs> kind of voiceover and so well what about that theory that people don't uh, don't read caption boxes so but as I say I don't know of anybody 
you know, I think there are some academics. Uh, a guy named Cohen has done some studies on just that, the physiology of how people read a comic page and stuff. But in general, the companies um, haven't done much uh, of that kind of thing, as far as I know. So, but, you know, so it, it um, you, you know, so I, I um, yeah, I guess we kind of tangent, did a bit of a tangent. So I don't, I, 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 I guess if I said, why do they have the covers of very little copy? It probably has to do with the idea that people already have read about the comics, so they just need to know that the cover looks different enough that it's not the previous issue. But mm. that, that would be my guess. I'm, I'm glad you actually said that part, because I remember a few, uh, a while back now, but it was, I think, during the mid-2000s, I was... I had a lot of comics on my pull list, and then I accidentally bought an issue twice because the 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 cover wasn't memorable. It was, I think I have this. I don't like. I, I don't know. Like it was kind of like, right. oh, they they put it in my pull list, so I must not already have this. Whereas if it was something again more, you know, it had something to do with the story or something about it that felt a little bit less samey and a little bit more unique, then I would never have made that mistake. Well, at the very least, we always used to make sure. I mean, you know, we tried to make sure that the logo colors and the background colors were different from in, in consecutive issues. Hmm. You know, it's because you have two issues in a row, uh, you know, the white background and red, you know, pri- you know primarily red le- uh, coloring on the title, then, you know, it could be somebody could easily either buy two or, or miss one, you know, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that, I mean, I, I do find it interesting if you go to a newsstand, if you can find a newsstand, you know, um, and you look at most other kinds of periodicals, they're mostly covered with tons and tons. I mean, look at something like Cosmopolitan. Mm. Rolling Stone, it comes and goes, depends. I mean, if they have a really striking or famous person, then they may not have much coverage. But almost every magazine still operates under that theory, right? That if you put tons of cover copy and you put the word sex in enough times, people will buy it. <laughs> You know, in, I mean, in comics, you know, the equivalent would be the word Batman or the word, I don't know what, or the word... Uh, Someone's going to die in this issue? Uh, <laughs> what? Someone's going to die in this issue? Someone's going to die in this issue or the name of an artist. But, but I mean, it does... You know, that that's the puzzling thing to me about comics now, of course, is, you know, is the the, the, de, the decompressed storytelling and, 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 uh, and that kind of stuff, you know. Um, you know, you look at any other storytelling form, uh, the amount of story content in a typical, you know, 44-minute TV drama is, it, it's just the opposite of decompressed. It has like 10 times more content than than, than, uh, than adventure shows, the drama shows have when I was a kid. You know, the, the reader now, the viewer now is able to take in so much more information so much more quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, the comics we seem to go opposite direction. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, again, I, I have to think there's somebody who's, you know, I guess, again, it's a theory that it's ultimately for the trade paperback, um, including for the foreign markets. I, I'm curious, I mean, I, I guess I, I can ask you, I can turn the tables. Do you see the existence of digital comics as having changed the way stories are presented? Uh, I, not really. Yeah, me neither. You know, and, and, but I think that's the next frontier. 
it definitely know, changes it changes the the reading experience, but I don't think it's changed how much content is really being de- de- delivered. I mean, I think they can almost get away with giving you a little bit less because of the page counts are different. Like if you look at Marvel's Infinite Comics, it looks like you're getting a lot of pages, but because there's not a, necessarily a lot of changes between one page to the other, they're able to pack more dialogue on one specific image without it obscuring it more. But they're not necessarily giving you more of the content itself. And then are they? Do they? Those digital comics? Do they then print those? They, uh, they do. I haven't read a lot of the ones. Like I read a, a recent, the most recent Infinite comic I read was I think six digital issues of a book by Fabian Nicieza on Deadpool and Cable. And then I know that they've been printing it in, in print, and I haven't actually picked it up because I'm I'm not sure how it would work because it was so. The obvious that it was built for the digital platform that taking it away from that I don't even know how it would function whereas some books they feel like they're not they're not necessarily as written with the that digital medium in mind and it feels like it'd be an easier translation to print uh, whereas this one felt it was very well done in a digital format and I don't even know how it would work otherwise I mean I like what Mark uh, Wade is, does with his Thrillment books I mean I think those mm. You know, I can. Those work nicely on, you know, on on a screen, and yet I can, you know, you can see how they would also work in print. You know, um, it, they, I haven't seen the Marvel Digital. Are they are they similar to the, to, to what Wade is doing? Or are they a different kind of thing? Uh, I think there's some similarities for sure. I uh, mean, just in the the way that the stories are presented. Interesting. All right. So, what's your next question, my friend? Uh, next question. Um, well, similar to the question about um, Moon Knight, where we started this, uh, which was um, at the same time you were also editing Alpha Flight, um, relatively late in that series run. What was your kind of approach to that book? It's funny, you know. That was another book. I, I had been freelance for about five years. I was doing some freelance, uh, a lot of freelance writing and some freelance editing. That's when I edited the Marvel Saga and a few other things. And then I came back on staff as a full-time staffer in the, in the middle of 89. And then this, this is another one of Carl's books that Carl and Marcus McLaurin were doing. And again, Moon Knight was a book, I, I mean, Alpha Flight was a book I, you know, I mean, I remember the early Burn issues, but I hadn't really followed it. Um, I didn't really understand who the characters were. Um, and... Um, and so it, it had it had a team on it. I, you know, I have to say that they they were uh, you know nice guys. They they uh, were totally professional. I mean, one thing they had their work in you know on time and and uh, you know ahead ahead of schedule. So those books were were very nicely done. Um, but uh, you know, there again, there was something about it that didn't click for me and. It wasn't selling all. I mean, if it was selling all that great and it doesn't click for me, then you know, then big deal if I don't like it. If it's selling great, but it wasn't selling great either, as I recall. At least I'm sure by today's standards it was selling great, but by the standards of yeah. <laughs> of uh, 1989, 1990, it it, it wasn't. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it's. it's a, I, I, I'm sure we covered this last time. Just that classic situation. You walk into a series that, that, you know, an ongoing series, and there's a team in place, and it almost never works out that just that team stay, stays in, in place. Again, unless the team you're talking about is, 
you know, has books that are selling so phenomenally well, you just, you know, you just kind of grit your teeth and go, well, what the hell, it's not, it's not to my taste, but a lot of people seem to like it, but this was not such a situation. So it wasn't, there was, there was nothing terrible about it. It was nicely written, nicely drawn. Um, but I felt at that point, especially um, for the company and, uh, and for my own um, pride of, of, of what I put out, I wanted to see what I could, if I could take this concept of alpha flight that, um, that had not uh, been lighting the world on fire for a while, see what I could do with it. So, that's when Fabian uh, gave, I don't remember if anybody else did, uh, but Fabian certainly gave me, Fabian always, as, as you know, always had a million ideas, and uh, he'd been thinking about these characters. I think vaguely it was Liefeld, maybe Liefeld was supposed to come along and do it, but then the whole image thing happened. That, that, that stuff is kind of vague uh, in my mind, but then I ended up putting what Michael Bear was on that with Fabian. I believe so. Huh? Yeah. So that, again, this, Fabian was this uh, force of nature. You know, he had a million ideas about how to how to uh, fix everything, uh, which you know, which led to he and I often uh, butting heads, but in a, you know, in a productive way and in a way that um, you know, I think we both always kept uh, professional. You know. Um, you know, he always wanted to do the wildest, craziest stuff, and, and my job, you know, was to um, take the best of what I saw as the best of it, and uh, and sort of keep it in, in uh, have it have it have the book be in keeping with what I saw as Marvel's the Marvel approach to comics, as well as my personal approach come combined, and then taking you know Fabian's. Um, zillion ideas and kind of arm wrestling with him until we got them down to ones that he and I uh, could live with but that still brought a new energy to the book so that's, you know uh, again, Alpha Flight like Moon Knight was something that in its early days had gotten a lot of attention there was sort of general goodwill towards it but nobody was really paying attention to it and the other book that was like that was Cloak and Dagger you know, where um, where they sort of had and it's called Legacy. They were, you know, they were less than ten years old, but they had, they were books that had excited attention and it, and had been first done by passionate creators, and then, as uh, corporately owned characters will do, they kind of moved. Uh, you know, their original creators left. You know, more uh, kind of uh, just professional, competent people, and even talented people, but people who had no special emotional connection came in, which is not, you know, again, not to put any of those people down. They, that's their job, professionals, to bring a professional attitude Absolutely. Um, you know, but, um, you know, I saw my mandate as to come in and do something with those books, so that's, um, yeah, that's what I did, and then and Alpha Flight was part of that, you know, and I think it, it got the book noticed, um, it put it on the map for a while, um, it was certainly different than uh, than what had uh, than what had gone before. I, you know, I I think it was better. You know, that's for that's for history to decide or for critics to decide. Uh, I think we I think we did uh, boost sales somewhat. Alpha Fly was always a tough sell, though. You know, just 
you know, it's it's kind of a neat title, um, but it's certainly not as direct as the Avengers, the Justice League of America, even the X Men. Mm-hmm. You know, Alpha Flight. Unless you're like an Air Force veteran, doesn't <laughs> really have a whole lot of meaning. I don't think you know. No. Even though, even though it's a, it's mellifluous. It sounds cool, but ultimately, it's not like. Right, you read the title of Superman. Oh, I know, that's a guy who's super. Batman, that's some guy who is bat-like somehow, you know. Mm-hmm. Alpha Flight is... What is that, yeah. What is that, yeah, you know, right? <laughs> Sounds cool, but you're right. But yeah, when, upon further inspection, it doesn't really hold up. Yeah, and I mean, like I said, it, it, it does its job of sounding cool, but it definitely, you know, I mean, sort of... You know, the two tests, I mean, not I guess every editor has a bunch of tests they run things through. One is the 12-year-old Danny test, right? <laughs> it's like, what would 12-year-old Danny think of this? You know, um, and I guess the other in a way is, you know, Danny's mom's test. Like, if I, you know, if I said to my mom, Mom, I'm the editor of Superman, right, or the editor of Spider-Man, she may not know anything, you know, my mom may not have known anything about any characters like that, but she would get the idea. But you go with, Mom, I'm the editor of Alpha Flight. Said, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you know, I'm sure every editor has their own equivalent to those. Mm-hmm. You know, my, the, other, the other sort of thing, and this, and this is hard, of course, but the, the other thing that I always try to keep in mind, whether as a writer or as an editor, but is... If this were in the first, right, again, this this is the highest standard of all, the first few years of Fantastic Four, the first few years of Spider-Man, right? Every issue was compelling, especially with those two, maybe even the first, like, five, six, you know, you know what I'm saying? Everything, there was something compelling, there was nothing, there were no marking time issues in those comics. Mm -hmm. There was something, so... Yeah, the, the question to me would always be, is this a marking time issue or is this an issue that, you know, that if somebody misses it, they will, like, kick themselves for the rest of uh, the year for, for missing it? And, you know, when, you, when you're a company that's putting out 150 titles a month, then, uh, then there will be some issues that, right, you can't, right, that's what made Marvel special and made, you know, DC, you know, anything new and innovative is going to have that special quality to everything. So, you know, it's sort of an impossible standard, but you like to at least shoot for that, you know. If this was one of the first 24 issues of Spider-Man, would it hold up, you know, would, would a reader want to buy the next one? So the, the, those are the kinds of sort of back-of-your-mind things you have when you're, when, you're, when you're creating anything, I guess, but in comics specifically. Okay. You know, those are the things that I... You know, I can't say we always hit it, but that was sort of always the... The goal? The, the ideal, yeah, the idealized goal. Okay. Okay, so... <laughs> what do you got? I got another one. Um, what were the original expectations, or were there any expe- real expectations when you guys launched New Warriors? Yeah, the expectations that it would suck. <laughs> <laughs> um... You know, it was it it, it uh, internally it got a lot of 
slack, you know. I mean, sort of, in a, what made it interesting was, again, was it took these kind of second-string characters and put them together. And, um, and you know, it was, a, it was a Tom DeFalco concept, and uh, which to me is a good thing, you know, and I think to most people it's a good thing. But the idea that it was generated in-house, taking second-string characters, um, there was a satirical ad that was circulated in-house, you know, um, that ha- even before the first issue came out, and uh, you know, it was, it, it was it had a picture of the New Warriors, and the tagline was Marvel Comics. If you didn't buy them, we couldn't make them. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know in other words. No matter what crappy product we put out, you know, if you're a Marvel zombie, you, you'll buy it. So, so it, that was good news and bad news, right? Because nobody expected New Warriors to be anything except a bunch of second-string characters who would um, who would be together in, in not especially interesting stories. And again, that's where uh, Fabian came in. You know, I had I uh, you know a lot of people put in proposals, and many of them had their strengths, but Fabian. Um, was obsessed. He was ambitious, obsessed, passionate, tireless, um, and uh, and so and so the book. You know, I gave the book to him and Mark Bagley. I'd worked with um, as both a writer and as an editor, and I knew how good he was and, and how professional. Um, and and he, um, you know, he'd been he'd been doing a lot of. I think he'd done some miniseries and he'd done some. Spider-Man issues, although, but when, War, when the Warriors was around, I had not gotten the Spider-Man books back yet, so, um, I don't know if he and Fabian knew each other previously, if, I don't remember if they'd worked together on anything, um, but Bagley seemed like the natural guy, and, uh, and, and then, and then the inker was, um, uh, Steve, was it Steve Lytle? Who was the inker? Uh, Inker was uh, on the first issue is Williamson. Right, Williamson was the first issue, but after Williamson, uh, uh, it was. But I mean, it was. It, I'm embarrassed like, that I'm not remembering his name because we really. Uh, uh, Larry Malstead. Larry, yeah, yeah, it was Larry Malstead, and um, uh, yeah, he was a very good. You know, we we I think we tested a few Inkers over Bagley and Malstead. Um, his stuff looked really good, and Bagley really liked it, which was really important. Yeah, having Al Williamson ink the first two issues was was wonderful because he was Al Williamson. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but he was not. You know, he. I think he inked it just at some at a point when he needed, and he had a gap in his schedule. But then eventually he didn't uh, have that time anymore. So Malstad was the guy we got. Yeah, that book was just uh, a joy. You know, again, it was me and. Fabian in like these loud shouting matches that you could hear all over the office, um, and, and 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 it was another one of those situations where it was done like everything. It was done Marvel style, plot first. So I think he and Bagley would discuss the plots quite a bit, um, so that um, so that we knew the stuff that Bagley wanted to to draw and. Um, yeah, it was just that you can just see that passion. I mean, I think that's you know of all the books I edited in that period, that one certainly has this high level of passion and the desire. Right on the one, it it was it was similar to Alpha Flight and Moon Knight in that nobody expected much of them. 
you know, but it was new and uh, and it was definitely the source of humor around the office, you know, right? taking these second string characters, throwing them together, who cares? Um, and that we were able to prove them wrong in such a, you know, such a major way and put those characters on the map and deal with a lot of, uh, you know, social issues and topical issues of the time and yet still have, you know, lots of, you know, Marvel comic style action and adventure. Um, you know, yeah, that, that was really, um, you know, I, I think that was a game changer for the careers of everybody involved. You know? Hmm. You know, it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. Um, Thing. Again, especially because the expectations were so low. Next question. Um, which spider writer that you worked with do you think is the most underrated for their work on the character? Well, I mean, if you look at some of the writers you worked with, obviously, like, a lot of them are really good Spider-Man writers and get a lot of, kind of, people think fondly on their work with Spider-Man. So, are there any writers of Spider-Man that you worked with that you think doesn't maybe get the recognition that they deserve for their work on the character? Yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I mean, maybe as we talk, I'll keep it in the back of my mind, but I mean, the most underrated, I mean, uh... I, I, you know, I'll just say that in general, an unsung hero of those days was Eric Fine. You know, mm. I, think, I think we may have talked about this last time. Eric uh, was my assistant, then he became an editor. You know, when, when the when the office expanded, he became uh, an editor working under me. But Eric was just uh, passionate, an idea machine, uh, and many of them good ideas, but he wasn't so wedded to them that if I rejected one that he would, like, take it personally and just go, okay, here's three more. You know, a, lo- a lot of stuff I did, uh, was, Eric was invaluable, too. So, I mean, I'd say, you know, and he was a very good writer, too. And still alive. I shouldn't talk about him, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, Eric was such a valuable asset to the office, and, and I think he, just because he was an assistant, you know, um, and wasn't the guy who liked to grab the spotlight, his contribution in general, you know, in sort of in history is, is overlooked, but he was really very important to me, to Spider-Man, to, to all the books we worked on together, to Marvel, you know, I think, you know, so I think maybe there's people like that. I, I'd, I'd say more than, say, a specific writer. I just think in terms of people, someone who was just a total team player and a, um, and, prolific with ideas and suggestions and and, 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 and and very insightful comments. Eric is really one of, you know, okay. is, 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 is a guy who should be, uh, you know, known better than he is. Okay. In the uh, in the early '90s, you brought or you got Jam De Mateus back on Spectacular Spider-Man to work with Sabu Sema. What was the process of bringing him back in the book? He'd written Spider-Man earlier, but what was the process of actually making him the regular writer on Spectacular? Let me think. Um, uh, that's a good question. Yeah, I knew Jam for a long time, um, and. 
we'd always, you know, we'd always gotten along personally. Um, let me think. Um, how did he? They got spectacular. Um, who was writing spectacular before? Uh, looks like Kurt Busiek was writing a few issues. You know, I think, uh, oh, you know what happened? I came back on the books. Um, I think David Michelinie was writing two books, and I didn't, I didn't want any one person writing two of the books. I wanted three different voices, and ultimately four different voices for the books. And so I think Kurt did some fill-in work. Did a lot of fill-in work on Web and Spectacular, uh, and then it, the Mattis had an idea for a storyline. I, you know, he might remember better than I did, but I think he had this idea. I think he had, you know, the first storyline, the Child Within, kind of spun out of uh, Craven's Last Hunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think J.M. had wanted to tell that story so we you know I think maybe it started just that story arc and then it sort of became obvious there's another guy uh, who so identified and so got what the character Spider-Man you know look everybody thinks they get what Spider-Man's about and and everybody does to some degree because he's the regular guy superhero you know he's you know the kid from Queens who you know I mean I, I you know, I mean, it does happen. He's like an honor student, and you know, and has, and, and, and is, you know, and is an impeccable character, and so on. But, but the, you know, the the easy thing to say about Spider-Man is he's the regular guy from Queens. He's the guy you see on the subway, uh, you know, or the guy who misses the subway train, you know, or, mm-hmm. or you know, he's he's. Um, you know, he's the kid. I mean, Peter Parker evolved certainly over the years. You know, uh, the great thing about Peter Parker, and, and forgive me if I'm repeating myself from our, the other half of the interview, is that Peter Parker is sort of the, you know, the, you know, the Woody Allen. People talk about this, the Woody Allen character. You know, and sort of the quick, you know, if you've seen Woody Allen's movie, sort of the easy thing to say, oh, he's the loser. He's, you know, nothing ever works out. You know, you think of that scene and take the money and run, where they have the jailbreak and they forget to tell him. <laughs> um, but if you look at Willie Allen's movies, by the end of every movie, you know, I don't mean the bleak later ones, but, you know, but the ones that are more straightforward uh, comedies, he gets the girl, he solves the problem, you know, he's, he's, he's somehow improved, you know, his life status, um, all while sort of under the guise of being like the hard luck nebbish. Right, so Peter Parker's the same thing. Everybody thinks, oh, Peter Parker, he's always got the bad luck, and then he's happy, and they certainly do, but ultimately, he's friggin' Spider-Man. <laughs> 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 Who, most of the time, wins. There may be a bittersweet part to it, something negative may happen, but ultimately saves the day, saves the city, saves Jonah Jameson, saves Aunt May, saves Mary Jane. Um, so I think while everybody gets that at a certain level, there are certain people who get it at a profound level, and among those are J.M., so, uh, you know, and Tom is another one, Roger Stern, I mean, obviously Stan, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so there are, uh, you know, any, you know, so it's just always, uh, and, and again, as we talked about chemistry last time, you know, I mean, 
I have over the years of working with JM, you know, um, critiqued stuff, asked him to redo stuff, suggested stuff. And instead of like um, having a fit or bouncing off the ceiling or, or storming out, he either says, that's a good idea, I like that, or I don't like that, let's figure out something else, you know. And um, that's, a, that's, that's where chemistry between uh, editors and, and, uh, and creative uh, people, not, or I, don't, I, I do believe editors are creators, so between editors and writers and artists comes in. And it's you know, and it's and it's very often a matter of chemistry, you know. Um, you know, as I said, there are people who I have done much, much less uh, editing than I've done on guys like Tom or Dematis. I mean, like barely anything. Who hate my guts will never speak to me again. <laughs> um, which you know is like completely baffling. And then there are people who are. You know, whatever reason, just go. Yeah, it's all well and good. Let's let's come up with a compromise we can both live with. Let's solve the problem. Let's, you know. So I always found that with with JM, and that if he actually, and his pride was such that if he actually liked an idea I came up with, he went, "Oh, I like that idea. Let's let's go." With, you know. Um, so uh, that's anyway. That's how I think. That's you know. I I think it was a book that, you know, when I when I got the books from the previous editor, there were certain plans of there was a, there were certain plans that I didn't like and I and I um and I changed them. You know, that uh you know, I mean it's it, it is funny that um you know there's there's always uh, there's always this this you know, especially now on the internet, you there's always this, you know, dictatorial editors, you know, and editors of course always feel, well there's dictatorial Freelancers, because the freelancer's ultimate uh, weapon is to walk away, you know, um, which, um, you know, you try not to trigger as, as, as an editor. Um, but, but again, I think there's always been, you know, I have no idea if today's editors are any more hands-on or dictatorial than they were, you know, 10, 20 years ago. It really is a matter of, the chemistry between the uh, writer and the editor and, and the artist and uh, and a hundred other factors that, um, you know, so you can have the same, e in the same year, right? I, I bet if you looked, if you did a Google search, probably every year for the past 75 years, <laughs> you could find somebody saying, those damn editors have too much power and somebody else saying, those damn writers have too much power and those damn artists have... You know, every situation is a different uh, balance. You know, mm -hmm. and the you know the goal is to sell comics, and you know, um, since nobody knows the actual secret of selling comics, then the other goal is to try to do comics that are as good as they can be, because that's the only thing you really can control. You know, is to make them good. Everything else is is some odd alchemy of what makes people buy stuff a question uh, about uh, actually going back to an earlier answer of yours about the uh, the editor copy or sorry the cover copy I should say who would write the cover copy of these issues I've always wondered um I would say that that's 95% of the time the editor okay 
you know, there may be a situation where a writer may have an idea for cover copy or an artist when he's drawing it may have an idea and then, you know, sort of letter that in. Um, but yeah, cover copy is, you know, at least in my experience, is generally the editor's uh, job. Okay. Um, I've always wondered, when you were writing The Deadly Foes of Spider-Man, how did you choose the characters you used? Um, is somebody vacuuming in the background there? Uh, <laughs> well, on The Deadly Foes of Spider-Man. No, 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 I heard it, but I'm just, uh, what's that noise in the background where you are? Is that... Oh, I, I don't know. Oh, that's weird, okay. Um, in The Deadly Foes of Spider-Man, how did I choose the characters? Um... You know, when I first proposed that, I was not... It was it was in between... It had been proposed originally as a um, series for Marvel Comics Presents. And so I think at that point I tried to pick characters who didn't seem to be used a lot, who as far as I could determine there weren't big plans for, or if there were plans for them, that the Deadly Foe story could fit relatively easily in between... Uh, in between their uh, their other appearances, I, I wanted characters who hadn't had much done about their backstory and their personal lives, and who were not so important that if I messed with their backstory, anyone was likely to get bent out of shape. But of course, you can never you can never predict about that because you know you there may be somebody with. Um, uh, with 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 plans and the works you don't know about, but that, I think that was the rule of thumb. Um, you know, for those for those characters I picked, and then I made up some characters uh, again, just so I'd have more freedom mm-hmm. with them. Were you surprised that you you got to uh, do a sequel series? Um, was I surprised? Well, I mean, the first one sold, so uh, no. I mean, I was, uh, I was, I was pleased about it, but it was definitely an era. You know, it, you know, it sold on its own, and it sold. You know, um, um, you know, it, it was, it was, it was coming out during the era when there was a need for a lot of material. So, uh, no, I would have been surprised if, if it hadn't. Um, you know, if, if there hadn't been. Uh, a sequel yeah, it was um, yeah so um, uh, that, that, I have no particularly profound answer about that Just it's okay <laughs> uh, another question a, a year and a half ago when uh, Marvel.com released the list of the, the 75 greatest Marvel comics of all time uh, on that list Maximum Carnage was number uh uh, let's see. Num- oh, now I forget what number it was. It was on the list, um, and there was a lot of people thinking that you know something like that shouldn't be on there, and it was very polarizing. Uh, what? What? How does it feel to have been involved in, in such a polarizing story? Um, I gotta admit, I didn't know it was so polarizing. Uh, it the, I mean, I think it's number twenty-seven on the list. Wow, and, and with number one being the most pop, being the most popular. Uh, yeah, number one was the death of Gwen Stacy. Huh. Um, you know, I, I I think what would uh, look Carnage himself was it was a uh, whose name Eric Fine came up with by the way. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, the character was, you know, was, was um, you know, Michelini, uh, that was David's concept, but the name uh, uh, was Eric's. Um, and of course, Dagley gave it the incredible visuals. You know, Carnage, um, the character was a little tricky because the character was so violent. And uh, the question was, you know, at least in my mind, was the character like that appropriate for something like Spider-Man that's apt to be read by a lot, you know, a lot by children? Mm-hmm. So that was maybe my only qualm uh, about Carnage. But Maximum Carnage, um, it's interesting, you know. Um, you know, again, I... I Back on Carnage of the story, we have a meeting of Spider-Man writers, and um, I would often come in with an idea, and I'd say, um, here's this idea. Um, I'm not saying it's a great idea, but you guys, if you don't come up with something better, uh, we're going with it. Um, so for some reason, nothing better was come up, was come up with than Maximum Carnage. But Maximum Carnage had a definite didactic point to it, you know. Um, there was, I mean, it had, a, it had an economic point because it was that era. I think the X-Men had done those line-wide crossovers and mm-hmm. very well, so I wanted to do something with Spider-Man, and we knew we were launching the Spider-Man Unlimited book, which gave me a chance to get Tom back writing some Spider-Man. Um, you know, I figured that, well, here were... Um, we had a whole class of villains that we were discussing before, like Venom and the Punisher. And they were villains, right? You couldn't even say they were anti-heroes. You know, at least James Bond had a license to kill. You know, somebody somewhere said, James Bond, you can kill. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and come, you know, I realize in every other medium for heroes to kill, uh, they were killed reluctantly. He, Say Venom and the Punisher went out looking for people to kill, who they judged to be evil. Uh, and yet they had their own comics, right? And so even though we weren't portraying them as heroes, we would, they were protagonists. They were the central characters in their books. So there were a lot of characters like that in the grim and gritty era, you know. Um, and then there were like the good guys who didn't kill, or, you know, like Spider-Man and Captain America... Um, and then there were the extra psycho villains like Carnage. Um, so I thought it would be, I wanted a storyline that would showcase the different shades of gray of the value systems of these heroes. And I wanted it to definitely come out oh, that the that the traditional heroes like Spider-Man, Captain America, um, I forget who else was in it, um, would be shown to be the good, good, you know. I sort of want to demonstrate that. I wanted to um, do that. And, and, and we had, you know, and, and because we had Venom and Carnage, who were those others, you know, you had Spidey, who was the good, good guy, Venom, the bad guy with his own title, and Carnage, the kind of uh, psycho killer, um, you know, not to mention... You know, at the at the height of the AIDS uh, crisis, Venom was kind of a character who looked like he and acted like he was made out of blood. You know, um, 
you know, so I'm, so I'm, and I have to say, you know, the Mattis especially was very hesitant about doing that storyline, and I was able to convince him to stick around and do it. I said, well, look, I know you hate these, like, you know, these killer heroes, these killer, you know, gray area characters. So now's your chance to, like, you know, be part of making a statement about them and 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 highlighting the. You know, the the really good guys, Spider-Man, Captain America, and so on. So, um, so that was very meaningful to me that JM decided to, to stay on and and, uh, and and work with it and, and work through it. You know, and, and it was a pain in the neck, you know, for everybody to, to work on a book like that because you, you sit around a room and you plot it all together, you know, uh, including with the artists. But then people only get to write a chapter. So you, you could be in a situation where you might have come up with some really clever or cool bit, but you don't get to write that bit because it's in somebody else's chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you know, getting the beginning, the end, and the beginning of each successive issue to to match up uh, is tricky. Uh, anyway, so I, yeah, I mean, I would say that ultimately, I'm proud of that storyline to achieve what we wanted it to. Um, was it all? You know, and it was commercial and made a buttload of money, and then. You know, I, I, I never, you know, we weren't thinking that way in those days, but that it became this game that's been around forever, which I've never actually seen. But Oh, really? <laughs> it's true. I mean, I've seen the, you know, the package, but I've never actually seen the game. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, <laughs> it's, inter- it's interesting because you mentioned, like, you know, this is a comic that's going to be read by kids. And for me, like, I was, I was nine years old when this comic came out. Um, I think it was the first real Spider-Man story I'd ever really read all of. Um, it made me want to collect the different parts and maybe go out to the, you know, the local newsstand trying to find the issues. So it definitely worked on kind of that 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 element of the target market and being a new kid who hasn't really read a lot of comics and putting out an exciting product that made you want to pick up the next issue and the next issue. For years, I'd only read certain chapters because I was buying it on newsstand. I couldn't find it all. So when they when Marvel collected it, I was like, finally, I get to read the entire story. <laughs> No, I, 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 um, I'm glad, I appreciate that. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry they weren't able to to get it uh, all at once. I guess more places probably can. I, I'm guessing you had all the issues of Amazing Spider-Man and everything else was hit and miss. Yeah, I had Amazing Spider-Man and I think Spectacular, and the ones I could never find were Spider-Man and Web. Uh, well, I mean, we did try. You know, look, we we did try to recap it, but obviously it's a somewhat complicated story. Oh, and in the middle of it. Was that where Peter was? Was the uh, Peter's alleged parents? Were they were in the middle of it also. They're in the middle of it as well. But yeah, it's, it's interesting because as a kid, you just kind of roll with it. Like I feel like if I picked up that comic now and I hadn't read anything else, I'd be like, I don't. What's happening? But as a kid, you just kind of fill in the blanks in your head because you're not worried about it. You're just reading the story. Yeah. Wow. That's. I love that. Thank you. And and I mean, I do like to think we were professional enough that we gave you enough information that it wouldn't be ultra. That it would basically make sense. Hmm. No, but 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 yeah, I mean. I think people don't give really kids enough credit, actually. Huh? I don't. I think that a lot of people don't give kids enough credit for kind of putting it together and not being dissuaded by large numbers or the fact that it's the middle of a story. If they're interested in the character and what's happening in the issue, it won't matter. You know, I think that's more of an adult issue. It's funny. I think kids are so used to be con- being confused by life. Like when you're a kid, everything is new and confusing. So, <laughs> so if the story is. Like okay, is one more new and confusing thing. I'm a kid. You know? <laughs> I think it's, I think when you get 
to be a grown-up, and you then you think you're entitled to have everything make sense. Where like then you like to examine things much more closely, like that. Hmm. Um, I wanted to ask now. This is. I feel like it's, we're going to either need another installment of this or something because um, I mentioned Maximum Carnage is number 27 on that list. Uh, number 65 is the Clone Saga, <laughs> which, again, is what for some, that's very polarizing, more so than Maximum Carnage. Did, did we discuss the Clone Saga last time? We, we glanced on it. Like, it's such a big topic that it's hard to, it's hard to just talk about a little bit of it but I guess what, where did the just with the clone sag and the genesis of it how did you guys first decide to bring back the clone um that and I mean well it was another one of those things where I came in and I said I have a you know um I a week and I think I worked it out with Eric and with uh, Mark Powers but I think it might have come from me originally I was coming up with just the you know a, a relatively tried and true the many costumes of Spider-Man, which they ended up doing a few years later where they did slingers and had all the different costumes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we needed a big deal. You know, Spidey sales, contrary to everything else in the business, you know, they were taking a hit, but not as badly. And the Clone Saga, as you know, reversed the trend. And, and while everything else was falling, the clone books sold. So in that sense, the Clone Saga did its job. Um... The writers didn't like that idea. Uh, Terry Cavanaugh came in uh, with the idea. He was writing Webb. And uh, Howard Mackey, who was writing the Address of this book, um, was, on, was very much on board with it. And, um, and so they pitched it. Um, and I was very dubious. Um, you know, for all the reasons that ultimately it became, you know, that people had, had uh, that some people had problems with it. Um, but what they did bring to it, and um, and that the other creative people at the summit, the Spider-Man summit, brought to it was a passion for it. They really, really wanted to do it. You know, um, I think the Mattis was there also. Um, because, right, it goes back to. Here's the problem with a character like Spider-Man. Same as the problem, any legacy character, Spider-Man, Batman, Superman, uh, you know, the Hulk, uh, the X-Men. Everybody thinks they know why it's popular, right? And nobody really knows, because if everybody knew, you could do it every issue every month. But everybody thinks Spider-Man's the regular guy, uh, he's relatable, he wisecracks, he looks cool in that costume got the cool webbing uh, he's got you know and so so sales start you know going down a little bit they've been phenomenally unbelievably high and then they start going down and everybody goes well you know the problem is he's no longer the hard luck teenager he's you know somebody in his mid or late 20s he's a successful photographer he's married to a supermodel who makes a lot of money uh he doesn't have enough problems um you know he needs to be brought back to basics and you know that right how many times have you seen that happen with spider-man and and other you know and batman superman the past 20 years past 30 years whatever so um so the clone was a way to get, you know, was that era's attempt to bring back 
get Spider-Man back to basics. He's not married. Uh, he doesn't have a supermodel girlfriend or wife. He doesn't have a lot of money. Um, so that was the impetus for it, you know, as opposed to what they've done more recently, which was to you know, have a whole magic thing where they just kind of rearranged the continuity. We didn't want to do that, you know. It's sort of Marvel was known for not doing that kind of thing in those days. Um, you know, we didn't want to have Doctor Strange step in and go abracadabra, you know, you're now a teenager again. So that's, you know, when you look at it, that's the impetus behind Brand New Day and One More Day and, and, and the whole ultimate Spider-Man character. So that our solution to that was uh, the clone. Um, so this story has been told many times. I, I was really uncomfortable with the idea, you know. And uh, the guy said to me, well, bring it, you know, Tom was not writing any of the books at that point. Um, or maybe he was writing Ultimate, uh, I don't remember, it, but he was not at the meeting. So he was back at the office being editor-in-chief. So they said, well, bring it back to Tom, see what he says. So I brought it to Tom, and he hated the idea even more than I did. <laughs> um, and um, I said, well, look, Tom, the guy's you know, are really committed to it. And, you know, sort of, one thing I'll say is that you can't, you can't, you can't make that kind of passion appear artificially, right? So I think when I told the guys, Tom doesn't like it, they said, well, ask him to come in, see, see if he'll come in. And so Tom came into the meeting, you know, it was at a hotel conference room, just a few blocks from the office. And, um, not only did they convince him that the story was worth doing, they convinced him to take over, you know, we convinced him to take over Spectacular Spider-Man, which at that point didn't have a regular writer. So that was the origin, and I think, you know, I, I know that Tom and I each had different back doors to get out of it, um, and um, I don't know if the writers did, they claimed they didn't, you know, because I think... You know, some of them really liked the idea of Peter Parker going off, getting married, having a happy ending. You know, Mary Jane is pregnant, he and she and Peter go off, and, and Ben Riley, who's really Peter Parker, comes in and takes over. Um, I find it hard to believe they didn't have a way out since they are professionals. They claim they didn't. Maybe they just didn't want us to think it would, that we could just tell them, you know, go to plan B now, boys. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the middle of that controversial storyline, which. Um, which became Marvel's symbol of its brave new direction. I mean, you know, the, the, you know that, that costume, the Ben, the, the Scarlet Spider costume became, you know, kind of the showpiece at, at all sorts of press conferences and, and uh, meetings. In the middle of that, there was a drastic corporate restructuring at Marvel. Um, and so... The people running the—I was no longer running the Spider-Man line, although I was still in it. But uh, technically, my position hadn't changed. But the way these things work in corporations, it had changed drastically, and that's when I started knowing I had to reach out and, and find somewhere to go. Uh, which is around the time that Byron Price offered me that job, uh, starting up that line of digital comics uh, for his company. Um, but so a lot of things changed. The Clone Saga was so popular that the marketing and promotions and salespeople put a lot of pressure on to extend. Originally, it was going to be like a six-month storyline at the most. You know, in comes Ben, out goes Peter. 
Uh, we established the status quo and bang, he's Spider-Man as a, you know, poor uh, young guy living in a crappy apartment and you know, <laughs> back, to, back to basics of Spidey. But it was so popular and so much pressure was put on for the marketing and sales departments and this was both while and after I had left that the story got stretched out to a couple of years because it was one of the few profit centers, you know, in uh, in you know, one of the two, it was certainly the highest or one of the highest profit centers in the publishing area. So it got stretched out way beyond how much we ever intended. Um, and so I think that's part of, so I mean, my theory on it, you know, um, because it was weird. I would see things, you know, so I'd left Marvel, I'd gone over to Byron, and I went over to Visionary Media, I did a, bunch, you know, a whole lot of things. Um, and suddenly I'd see people, like professionals online, you know, the internet was new then, I'd see like professionals who never read the Clone Saga and never worked on it, like saying, you know, uh, saying nasty things about it. And then, you know, you'd see like different uh, fan publications going crazy over it and, and deciding that, that it was the worst thing that ever happened. And all I can say is that it, it um, it seems to me that it was a became a lightning rod for this nervous breakdown the entire industry was having. Mm-hmm. It was during that Craig, you know, when Marvel, you know, bought uh, that uh, that distributor that uh, imploded on itself, and um, um, you know, when they bought Heroes World, and then distribution crashed, and everybody ended up running to Diamond, and. Uh, you know, I think the Clone Saga became this lightning rod and symbol of everything that was wrong in the business that that had little, if anything, to do with the actual content of the storyline. You know, I mean, I think people, because I know people were saying nasty things about it who had never, you know, before it came out, people who'd never read it, never seen any of it, who just heard rumors of, you know, about other rumors. Uh, and then you cut to, you know, 20 years later, and uh, Marvel decides to repackage and reprint the entire thing. So I never uh, thought that would happen, to be honest. Like, it felt like for so many years they would do anything to not reference the Clone Saga, and suddenly they put out, you know, 11 trade paperbacks of the entire thing. And I, as, a, as again, I grew up during that period. I was a fan. I liked it. So I bought every single volume, and I'm, I'm proud to put them on my bookshelf. Thank you. You know, again, I, and again, I think, look, not, not, you know, I think depending on the individuals involved in each story, you know, the stories were or weren't, um, you know, were, 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 you know, some were better than others, and it was, and I can't, obviously I can't speak for one on after I left. Um, um, but, yeah, I think it was, you know, it was just interesting that it, the way people reacted to it in a way, I mean, it shows how much people care about Spider-Man, which is, you know, a great thing about the character. Uh, but, but I do think it came at this period of upheaval in, in the business and, and, it, and it became an easy thing for people to point to and say, that's what's wrong with the comics. And yet there were a lot of wonderful, you know, a lot of great stories in it. Uh, I mean, it was a classic kind of story about, you know, um, you know, it goes back to a tale of two cities. It goes back to, you know, Cain and Abel. I mean, it goes, you know, that's the classic story about someone has a, you know, a duplicate or a doppelganger or a twin or a clone. And, 
you know, it, it goes, you know, even the whole the whole concept of secret identity is about that. What what is it that makes a person a person? What makes a hero the hero? Is it the powers? Is it the you know? Is it that you know they do or don't have money or you know or or, or, or um, you know what's the essence of who a person is? And in this case, what's the essence of who Peter Parker and Spider Man is? That's you know, that's one of like the, you know, whatever, one of the seven stories, you know, in, in his, you know, ever of anything, you know, who is this person? You know, what, what makes you, you, uh, you know, what, what makes, right? That's why people love stories about royalty, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what, you know, that's why people are interested in celebrities. That's, you know, that's why people write biographies, you know, I mean, it's sort of what makes me, me, what makes them, them, what do we, what do I have in common with the president of the United States? And so how come I'm not the president or how come he is or, you know, so, so the, the clone was just in that classic tradition. Uh, but, you know, look, it, it was fascinating and, and it was distressing to me, especially when it was closer to it. There were, you know, because of what happened, yeah, I was very close to it. You know, it was it for me was also tied up with a lot of emotional stuff going on with the restructuring of Marvel and, and things going on that made me feel that I had to leave. And and I like to reiterate, even though nobody cares or remembers that I resigned, that wasn't I wasn't one of those people who was fired or laid off. I left under my own steam, but it had become very unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it it to see people take pot shots at it or to see people online or in uh, wherever pontificating about it as if they knew about it, as if they knew the inside story when they knew nothing, (laughs) was infuriating and demanding. Um, But it says 20 years later, now they're reprinting it, and now it's, you know... um, Everything comes around someday. Huh? Everything comes around someday. Yeah, and you know, and certainly I get enough mileage out of telling people that I was, you know, the editor of the dreaded Clone Saga. You know? <laughs> um, and you know, and, and and just again in commercial terms, not that that's always the only reason, but in terms of turning around Spider-Man sales, which were never bad anyway, but bringing Spider-Man sales went up when everything else was going down because of that Clone Saga. You know, while I was there, I cannot speak for what happened after I left. <laughs> Um, I actually want to ask, um, what were like, what were how many designs went into creating what became the Scarlet Spider costume? Um, which one? You mean the sweatshirt one or the other? Yeah, the the sweatshirt because that was like that was the big thing. Like, was it always meant to be this was going to be his look, or was it going to be refined over time and then people just really liked it? Or, um, well, the the basic idea was mine, you know. Um, Executed. I know. Obviously, Tom Lyle did the one that was we finally used. Um, I don't think anybody else contributed to the look, but I don't remember. I know Tom. I think you'd have to ask Tom. I think he. You know, pretty sure it was, it was you know, certainly ninety-nine percent Tom's uh, design. And my my thought was, here's a guy who quit being Spider-Man. Right? He went away. Now he's in a position where he's going to have to be some kind. He's going to have to go into action because um, he's forced to. What if they were having an exhibition at the Museum of Natural History, where they had, or some, you know, which is where we ended up setting it, where there was some 
Absolutely. He's got very strong memories about it. Um, of course, it had to be approved by, you know, uh, uh, by DeFalco. And, uh, you know, but it, it, it seemed to fit with the way the story was going. Let's, I'll, I'll switch gears for a second uh, to just before the Clone Saga started. Um, how did uh, you get an Ascenti to write an, uh, an arc of Spectacular Spider-Man to expand the Typhoid Mary character? With what character? Typhoid Mary? I think she created the new Bloody Mary persona during that storyline. Uh, no. Typhoid Mary was in Daredevil, wasn't she? Well, Typhoid Mary was, but she added a new personality for the character during that story. Known as Bloody Mary. Was that... Because she had done a Spidey arc like, back, like in 88 or 89, hadn't she, with the Sienkiewicz covers? Uh, actually, you you might be uh, better than me here. (laughs) You might be right. Yeah, so that was she did that. She did that Mad Dog War. Then for me, she yes. returned to the Mad Dog War, and she did a Venom arc. So I think I think her arc was in um, in the Agitless book, right? She didn't do it in Spectacular, did she? Uh, right before the Clone Saga, she did do four issues of Spectacular. That I know for sure. Who drew them? Uh, Chris Marinan. That's a good question. Uh, James Fry. James Fry drew four issues, or maybe it wasn't four issues. Maybe I'm wrong there. Sorry, I was going. Yeah. I was going. Um, maybe only a couple. I know Anne was doing a bunch of freelancing for me in general. Okay. So maybe I mean, look, that might have been why Tom was able to take over Spectacular when we had that meeting about the clone because it didn't have it didn't have a regular writer at that point. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, I think Stephen Grant was supposed to write it. Yeah, Steve, after the Mattis, I think Stephen Grant came on board, and, you know, he just decided it wasn't for him, you know, I mean, I'm still, you know, good pals with him, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, you know, a dramatic thing, I think mean, he just decided it wasn't something he wanted to do, or, you know, I, I, I don't remember the details, it was an amicable, <laughs> an amicable split, and then I guess the book was without a writer, so maybe, uh, I know Anne did a Venom arc. Yeah. It looks like she did. Uh, uh, spe- with Chris she did Spectacular Spider-Man two thirteen to two fourteen. So I was remembering that wrong. It was two issues. Two issues. 
with uh, Typhoid Mary, and she uh, debuted the Bloody Mary uh, personality for Typhoid Mary in that story. Right. You know, that was, I mean, I was the group editor at that point. I think that was edited by Mark Powers, so Mark might remember. Oh, okay. Ed, or Ed might remember more about that uh, than I did. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure Mark told me he wanted to do that two-parter with Ann, but... Two minutes remaining for this call. That would have been more, that, that particular story would have been more in his ballpark. Okay. Well, I'm going I'm to, I guess, uh, cut us off, but thank you so much for joining us again, Danny. My pleasure. Um, all right, so... <laughs> um, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. And um, it's, it's great to get your perspective, as always. Uh, very illuminating, and uh, yeah, thank you, thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate all right, great it. Great questions. All right, thanks. And all right, so let's, let's officially end it. Oh, yeah. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> right, bye-bye.